And welcome to episode 58 of the Brood Sages, Stormbound Players with a head for the game. I am Freeloader, and with me, as always, are Sabaiku and Thomas. Sabaiku, how's it going tonight? Fantastic. And Thomas, how are you doing? Pretty all right. <laughs> we are the Brood Sages, easily the second best Stormbound-related podcast in production. And as a reminder, you can always follow us at Brood Sages on Twitter. Or for all of you who confuse Pinterest with Instagram, our email address is thebroodsages at gmail.com. Uh, for everyone listening, uh, we are uh, experiencing technical difficulties tonight, so apologies in advance if this isn't the best recording we've ever done. Uh, we're trying out an entirely new system tonight uh, uh, solely for like making it work when we don't have great internet. Uh, but we thought this was a really important episode to do. Uh, we got a wonderful email uh, from Dragonstar5674, uh, or 5674. I don't know how they pronounce their last name, uh, uh, who's also known as West on Discord. And uh, they wrote, just going to give you a quick sample of some of the stuff they wrote from their from their wonderful email. Thank you very much. Just wanted to say that I've been t uh, I've, I've taken to playing Stormbound recently after a three-year hiatus, and it's been a really enjoyable experience thrilled to hear that we obviously love this game to the point that we decided to make a podcast about it it's always great to hear other people love playing uh in the two months i've played i've been lucky enough to climb up to diamond with the help of members of the community and of course podcast episodes we are very thankful that you bothered to ever spend time listening to us um we try to be insightful it's really nice to hear that you find us insightful that's great however for other newer players, easy access to tutorials, starting level content can be difficult to find. I think it would be neat if you made an episode that touches on maybe not the super basic fundamentals of the game, but for those neat little quirks about Stormbound that we all love it for. So this is a wonderful idea. Uh, and Sabaiku pointed out that we've done a few things kind of like this in the past, not to this degree of like an actual tutorial-ish. Um, but we've we've honed in on on specifics of playing, and those have been some of the more popular uh, podcasts that we've produced. So we said, why not? Let's do it. We're not going to get into the fundamental, fundamental basic mechanics of the game. If you want those, they are wonderfully well documented uh, in the battle guide at Stormbound Kitty. We will include the link to that battle guide in our show notes. So if you're looking for that, uh, just check the notes. You can even hit pause on this. We won't mind uh, and go. Stormbound Kitty is just an amazing repository. Moving on from there, though, uh, let's get into some of the um, I, I'm thinking of this, guys, more as like a if you are a either like a veteran player who could use a refresher because it never hurts or a new wish player. Right. Um, we've got macro strategy issues. We've got micro strategy issues. We've got resource management considerations, and then we've got laddering uh, uh, and and just sort of like general how to improve kind of stuff, right? And I think if you go through uh, and take a look uh, at at like the top 20, 30 players in, in Stormbound, they have individually like specific strengths. They're really good macro players. They're really good micro strategy players. They're really good ladder players, right? Uh, uh, and so for all of you who think, you know, well, you know, 
I'm already, you know, really, really solid. Yeah, you probably are in one area. Maybe there's another area that you'd like to start improve on. And hopefully maybe we can help uh, sort of guide you into some ideas on, on where you might look for improvement there. So with that, let's start with the macro strategy. Uh, Sibaiku. Um, so for macro strategy, how do you want to describe the idea of a macro strategy in Stormbound? So I like to think of this as what is the intent of the deck that I'm building? What is it trying to do? How is it going to win? And go from there to think about how I'm going to play any particular matchup. Uh, so there's a lot of overlap with deck building here and a lot of overlap with uh, the archetypes that we've started talking about, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago at this point. Do you want to make a rush deck? Do you want to make a mid-range deck? Do you want to make a control deck? And which faction do you want to put it in? What, what is each faction good at? So uh, to start with, um, it really depends on your play style and what you enjoy playing and what you uh, are trying to get out of your Stormbound experience. Like me personally, I tend toward decks that are pretty high tempo with just a little bit of value. So I would say probably like an aggressive mid-range deck, a little bit of flexibility, but mostly rushy. Uh, so to that end, I keep the mana curve low in my decks because uh, that fits what the deck is trying to do, which is win the game relatively quick, quickly with a little bit of a backup option in case it can't get there. Um, a, a lot of macro strategy is also around what combos are you including in your deck. Maybe you're making a Shadowfen Rush deck, so your combo here is really Reign of Frogs and Obsidian Butchers, and you want to try to keep them together. Does your deck even work if these cards aren't together? These are the things you got to uh, think about as you're putting the deck together, but also as you're going into each matchup, you got to think about what am I trying to do in this match as a whole? And that's that's where the the macro level of the strategy comes in. It's what am I trying to do in this match as a whole? It's not just I'm trying to win, but how am I trying to win? How am I trying to get there? So, Thomas, this is interesting. Uh, when you build a deck, how much of the deck do you like how much of that process do you uh, uh, put into what do you have to counter? What am I going to see on ladder? Like, I want to build a deck. I want it to be a winter deck. I want it to do X, Y, Z. Oh, but I better make sure that I've got a counter, some way to handle Rain Bragda. I better make sure I've got some way to handle Bucks decks. Like, do you find yourself allotting like 33% of your deck slots or something? I'm just making a number up there. Do you find yourself allotting a certain percentage of your deck slots to... I know what the meta looks like and feels like, and I better have these counter cards to those decks. Or do you just sort of start with, this is what I want to do, and then if I start losing, I'll adjust by adding in the cards necessary to compensate? I definitely choose the, uh, the second option because um, until you really start playing a whole lot of games and start getting a feel for what all of your opponents are trying to do in general, it's better to create a strategy around what you feel more comfortable with and um, what you're best at. So create the thing that is best for you. Obviously, this is my own personal opinion, and so I'm 
just speaking, I guess, in third person. Uh, so, like, create the deck that is the best for you, the best game plan, the best win conditions for your style of play. And then as you start seeing uh, more of one thing or another, uh, I generally don't put more than two uh, sideboard slots or two, I guess, tech cards into a deck uh, for a certain matchup that's really, really rough for me to try and shore those up. Um, unless you're really, really, really sick of a certain archetype and you just put half <laughs> trying to annihilate that thing because you want that out of the game permanently. <laughs> Last month with Rain Bragda. <laughs> This uh, very, but yeah. So I also then, like, with that uh, thought process in mind, I generally do go a little bit more rushy to start with, um, because it's it's easier to start uh, rushy, and then as you're getting your tech cards in, that generally slows your gameplay down and uh, moves at the tempo, knowing whatever your opponents are playing. So if you need to start playing um, Loris because there's a lot of Zuri decks in the meta, uh, you can slot that in. He's a little heavier card, so that's going to slow your deck down a little bit more, but that's fine to be able to completely shore that matchup up. Um, so that's my general uh, approach to the game. That's interesting because that is the opposite of my approach when I'm building a deck. I always start slower and start with you know, combos that I, I want to hit uh, or a, a long-range game plan, and then inevitably, as the deck starts to lose, I just start to speed it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this this isn't working. I need to get rid of you know this four mana card and put in gifted recruits. This isn't working. I need to get rid of the six mana card and put in you know wild saber paws. And yeah, yeah, yeah I, tend, I tend not to. I, I tend to really like to play my own homebrews, right? Like. And 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 in this game, that I'm not really sure what that means because there's only so many cards in a deck, and I'm never the first person to come up with a combo, right? Like, oh, witches looks really good with trekking aldermen. I want to build a deck around witches and trekking aldermen. Guess what? I wasn't the first person to do that. <laughs> but you know, I kind of start from that kind of concept of, oh, I love how these two cards play with each other. I want to make a deck that focuses on that interaction. And I kind of go from there based on that interaction. Is it an aggressive interaction? Well, then I'm going to build an aggressive deck. Is it a defensive, like witches and trekking? Feels like a a, a mid-rangey, I'm trying to like stave off aggression, right? Five, five damage from trekking alderman isn't a ton, but against a rush deck, five damage is a big deal. So, you know, it, it feels like a, a rush counter kind of combo. And, and then I, I kind of build from, from there outward, right? Whatever the combo is that I want to, 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 to have as the centerpiece of my deck defines the tempo versus value weight of the deck, if that makes sense. So it's funny that um, I don't think we helped our listeners at all. At all, we have one person who starts fast and starts <laughs> slowing down as they start um, losing. One person who starts slow and starts speeding up as they lose, and then another person who just uh, decides uh, a combo and builds around that. <laughs> so well, yeah, but I think that's good. I mean that yeah. that what that means is all of them are viable. You just have to bear in mind yep. what it is that you're doing. 
Exactly. And that's exactly what I was about to uh, get to then is that so ultimately there is no correct answer. So basically um, figure out which one it is that you prefer the most of all of these different clearly viable options and stick with it and hone your skills in in that uh, method. Yes, I, I think if we're going to get into the nitty gritty, though, of, of micro strategy, the thing to remember is so so I have a very good idea from the get go, whether I'm a controlee deck or I'm the aggressor deck. Right. And uh, uh, Sabaiko, you'll recall uh, we both read a wonderful article talking about this uh, back in um, I think it was talking both about Hearthstone and Magic the Gathering um, every matchup that you queue into one player is the beat down the aggressor and the other one is the controlling deck and it's not always clear who's who especially in a mirror match where you basically have the same archetype in the same faction yeah that was an old magic the gathering article that um you know has has remained relevant in card games since then um and really it's a question to me of tempo and whoever is ahead on tempo is the one that is the aggressor who is the beat down and whoever is behind on tempo has to play that control role now some decks are better at playing that control role than others some are better at playing the aggressive role than others um so if you're if you're slower controlling deck and you're opening on three mana and you can't play a card like it doesn't matter that you went first you're starting out the game behind on tempo um to me i see tempo as essentially being ahead on board applying pressure um so it's a combination of both front line and strength you want to be ahead on board in the sense that you have more strength than your opponent but that strength doesn't mean too much when it's back on your own baseline that strength has to be up near their base in order to be uh providing you with the ability to control the flow of the game right tempo is effectively demanding a response from your opponent if i put lady rhyme on my baseline my opponent is not being demanded to respond to that they can look at it and go that's big i'm just gonna play around it um putting a giant unit on my opponent's baseline however is essentially hey i win the game if you don't do anything you better have some sort of response uh and so the the higher the tempo the more of that demanding of a response you can't play the turn you want because what i have just done is forcing you to instead respond to me i'm dictating the tempo of this game uh and it's not always the more aggressive deck that gets to do that because RNG of card draw, who gets to go first, all of these kinds of things. And the article really boiled down to a lot of the best players can identify when they have to misappropriate their deck. It's a control deck, but I have to behave like the aggressor because my opponent is also a control deck and I've got the tempo. So I've got to take advantage of that. Or we're both playing rush decks somebody has to be the control otherwise it's just going to be whoever draws into whatever um those are those are the the key moments when you can identify the macro situation yes i want to win 
but in this particular matchup, I have to play this particular style, even with my deck that's not honed for it in order to win. Um, Thomas, do you ever find yourself like playing a rush deck and, and but randomly just playing defense for like three, four turns until you can turn it around? Oh, absolutely. That kind of stuff happens all the time, especially as um, I was going through the, the ranking world back when I had underleveled cards. Um, a lot of people in gold would be playing something like, uh, well, I guess this is back in the day when pretty much only Swarm Rush was uh, the viable faction for, for Rush. And so you just are bouncing cards off each other until uh, eventually one person gets a slightly luckier draw for the slightly more value cards. And that's the person that then ended up winning. So you basically just played defense the entire game or both people played defense because you had the exact same deck. And it was just keeping your opponent off their uh, front. And so it's really important um, to, as the game goes on, for sure, understanding um, when you can start going, uh, or I guess, yeah, when you're like the aggressor, like versus the uh, defender. I, I remember a specific stretch. I was playing Reckless Rush's uh, uh, Swarm uh, uh, Rush deck. And uh, I, I, I queued into about, I want to say something ridiculous, like out of 20 games, it was probably 12 or 13 mirror matches. And of those mirror matches, four or five of my opponents had flooding the gates uh, tucked into their deck. And so I couldn't believe that even though I had the initiative, they were just going right around me. They were letting me get onto their baseline. I base locked them. I'm like, holy smokes, this is the easiest game of my life. And then out of nowhere... (laughs) I find out why they've been behaving like they're not, they're the beatdown. I'm like, well, how is it possible? I've got more units on my your baseline than you have on mine. And then I lose the game. So, uh, uh, you know, identifying isn't always easy, but it, it really is the, 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 the key to being able to win in the, in the micro strategy. Before we move on for, for pardon me, macro, before we move on for macro, I think it would be good to sort of give a, quick brief overview of uh the four factions and and what we think each one is good at um i will start with sabaiku give me what what do you think when you think of winter what do you think oh that's a great lead in here because we've been talking about tempo and value and winter is god winter has a lot of high value cards Mm -hmm. but they have a lot of high value cards that create a lot of tempo at the same time and that's why uh winter rush works so well for example you know there's some units floating around in the middle of the board in the first couple of turns what do you do icicle burst Shivana, turn it turn their unit into your own eight strength unit and then still have four mana to continue to develop and attack in the same way gift of the wise allows you if you survive to the late game uh, allows you to do more than your opponent clear the board and apply pressure um it allows you to invest your early turns into damage like saber paws or wolf cloaks chip damage because you know that you can come back and turn around that board even if you get behind and flip and flip the tempo uh so to me that's the really big strength of winter with the especially through mana manipulation is the ability to flip the tempo of the board so quickly on these pivotal turns. Yeah, I, I, Thomas. To me, I, I think 
I think Sebeko's hit it on the head here. Winter to me feels, I mean, ha ha ha, hot or cold. Um, it's either super aggressive builds that have a lot of very strong early turns that can, you know, get extra value out of the turns with Icicle Jev and whatnot, or Mist Wives uh, or Wolf Cloaks, or it's super late game value stuff. But the mid range for winter is the part that to me feels the least well-defined. I can hundred percent agree with that. Um, if we want to, uh, to move on, I would say that the next faction that feels um, extremely close to winter these days with, when it comes to that description would be swarm. Mm. Um, okay. Swarm is generally either extremely aggressive or has the ability to be very, very controlling with Dark Harvest and um, Broken Truce and then like Pillars of Doom. And so um, Swarm is actually probably even more uh, dangerous to misguess or to, uh, yeah, to misguess whichever uh, type your opponent is playing. If you think that they're playing Swarm Control and they're actually playing Swarm Rush, you just lose instantly. And it can be very easy to lose if you think that they're playing Swarm Rush and so you're playing a little bit more controlly, and then they plop a Pillars of Doom uh, a mile away from you. They don't even have to plop a Pillars of Doom. A lot of times I, I feel like it's a Swarm Rush deck and I'm just trying to clog the middle of the board by playing my mid-range units, you know, eight, ten health units in the middle of the board to make it impossible for them to get around me and then instead they just drop bucks and suddenly two of their units are getting 10 health buffs <laughs> Sabaiku, how difficult is it to be able to ascertain what kind of swarm deck you're playing against it's very easy because it's always a bucks deck <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it is not literally always a bucks deck but i would say probably uh, i would say probably four out of five swarm decks that i face are it's just a question of how aggressive are they around the bucks mm -hmm. uh the control tools are there in swarm but like it's broken truce and dark harvest so it's stuff that you can kind of work around if you know it's a slower deck um although to thomas's point it's not always easy to identify that it's a slower deck because yeah. control decks do tend to play the same cheap cards as most rush decks it's just they deploy them defensively to slow the game down and that that might not be so easy to to ascertain in the uh in the early game um but uh defensively swarm cards like head start and doppelbox don't really do anything so if you mm -hmm. see a card like that you know all right i can attack they can't play defense well with these cards and uh, that that at least enables an opening there for you. That's fair. Well, I'm That's fair. an indicator what deck they are. I'm kind of the same way that uh, Winter. It's pretty straightforward whether they're going to be a rush deck or one of those large mana decks by that turn one of Lost Psyches or Freebooters. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you see well, Freebooters, yeah, but... you know what you're up against, and that helps. <laughs> But mm -hmm. yeah, you see green prototypes into frost taxes and you're like, uh, mm -hmm. not sure. Yep. Um, Ironclad still now feels like uh, a mid-range faction. I, I, 
there is the Mia true shot controlling deck out there. And there are some builds that are more rushy, but heart sure. are still strong. Yeah. Yeah. But even, even, even a lot of their aggressive mid range decks, remember we had a huge problem for a while. Couldn't tell the difference between ironclad rush and ironclad mid range because the mid range deck that was being played was a, uh, unstable build Hearthguard's deck, and it was like, well, it, it it's just sort of mid-rangey with this really rushy feel to it. Uh, and Ironclad still just kind of feels like it's a good all-around mid-range deck. No? Yeah, you can build it in different directions, but in general, you're probably seeing either an aggressive mid-range deck that runs, you know, like like scrapped and tries to finish with um. Uh, unstable hearth guards or a slower mid-range deck that is going to try to work around some uh, upgrade point Mia shenanigans. Yeah, I would say that um, the hot or the sweet spot for Ironclad is still anywhere between uh, rush to mid-range and then um, onto Shadowfen. It's like mid-range to control. I'd say in, in general, Shadowfen is doing a little bit better job at the uh, the heavier side of the mana curve and uh, gameplay than Ironclad. Just oh, for pick. sure. Especially yeah. now that Rain got nerfed to three mana. Like like any of those fast lime limbs with Rain Butchers follow ups. Um, those kinds of decks just, just aren't really viable anymore. You need to add more more uh, heavy hitters to it. But Ironclad, yeah. Uh, Green Gales. I feel like Green Gale was better with Rain in the meta, and now it's not as good. But Windmakers at four is still pretty darn excellent. Yeah, definitely. It, yep. It's still a viable card for sure. Uh, and I have played around with the Trekking Alderman opener into Destructobots on two, and I could tell you that that's, uh, that's busted when it happens. It's nowhere near as easy to make happen as Trekking with Witches, which is why... I've opted to go with uh, Shadowfen for my controlling uh, decks that use Trekking. Trekking is a wonderful card in, in Shadowfen, and I agree with Thomas. So, Mike, you agree as well that, that Shadowfen right now is less of a rushy faction and more of a mid-range to control? Yeah, I think that's spot on, actually. It's a great way to, to look at it. The Ironclad has that kind of more aggressive mid-range spot in, in the meta and Shadowfin has the more heavy mid-range spot, and you know, you can kind of tech those decks to go in either direction. But it's it's a real good starting point. Yeah, and for my per- particular personal favorite playstyle, Shadowfin still sits in there. That 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 controlly mid-range deck is always where I kind of end up sitting. Let's move on from here. We'll simply mention that uh, if you want to have a better understanding of tempo versus value. Uh, you can always go back to our episodes 11 and 12, where we talk about those two concepts in further detail. Um, but so that's the micro, the macro strategy, right? You come into it, you're, oh, I need to figure out uh, my deck is a controlling style deck. This looks like a rush deck. I'm the control. They're the beatdown. Let's move from that kind of thought process into the micro strategy, right? Micro strategy is more things like positioning. Where am I going to put units, cycling, uh, order of play kind of concepts, um, and just, you know, what resources are appropriate for this particular matchup? Which cards should I not play? Um, you know, 
a great example of that is in the Shadowfen v Shadowfen. Never drop what I refer to as a naked rain. Don't 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 play rain and leave it on the board for your opponent to use. Um, but in general, uh, uh, let's talk through some of these ideas. Uh, Thomas, give me some thoughts on unit positioning. If I'm if I'm a solid player who's looking to improve myself, what kinds of things do you think I aren't like I'm not necessarily taking into account when I position units on the board? Um, I guess the very first one that comes to mind is just something that happened earlier today. Uh, an opponent was too aggressive uh, coming towards my baseline and I wasn't going to be able to clear all of their stuff and everything walking in is, was going to put me on one, at one health and so I wasn't able to like do anything else about it and so I just put all of on my turn then I just put all my stuff on their baseline locking them out and it's like well if you don't have a runner then I win and they didn't have a runner so I won so when it comes to playing you really got to think about like even if it make like even if you're gonna like just try and do something like that you need to not be too aggressive and not force your opponent to just also go all out then like just leave one unit behind um and to not force let them just base lock you if you don't have a runner in your deck yeah that's that's, that's a that's a really good point um so, so Baiku, in general, how much do you weight units on your baseline versus uh, 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 units on your second row? Like, like your opponent has, uh, let's say, a gifted recruits in a corner on your baseline. How important do you think it is to clear that versus just clogging up that second row to prevent any further runners? Uh, the answer is how easy is it to clear that? How easy is it to reset my opponent's front line? If I'm not going to be able to reset my opponent's front line, the answer is definitely clog up your second row. Uh, we, you just mentioned effectively using your resources. Your base health is a resource. We have talked about that in the past for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, you can definitely eat up you know, four or five damage without really worrying about your opponent ending the game in one hit. So if you can keep them off of your baseline, make it easier for you to clear the following turn, then that's definitely preferable. Uh, I would say that's probably, you, you asked Thomas what to consider in positioning. That's the hardest thing for me is not, where am I going to put these units this turn, but where are they going to end up the following turn? because of either how they will move or because of what my opponent will do. And always trying to keep in mind that your opponent has time to respond to what you're doing. So try to set them up. And that's a little more difficult, uh, you know, for something like Loris, for example, if I have Loris in my deck, I will try to keep my opponent's units together because it's more likely that I'll get value out of Loris that way and that they'll be bordering and Loris will be able to clear multiple units. Uh, if I don't have Loris in my deck, but I have something like, you know, Windmakers, it's the same thing. Try to try to steer your opponent toward playing them together so that your cards are more effective. Um, and that that's all through setting up the positioning early to take advantage of it later. 
Yeah, I, I have found with both Loris and Windmakers, actually, that their best um, effectiveness, for me at least, has been as an enabler to go aggressive. I have Loris in hand. I can dump the rest of my hand on their baseline and just let them put pressure on my baseline the following turn. Like, I know there's a unit on my penultimate row right now. I'm going to hit go, and it's going to be on my baseline. I'm going to give them the opportunity to put you know, another unit on my baseline and he's probably going to use the rest of his uh, mana to clear my aggression near his baseline. Uh, that's the better play. I'm setting up the Loris that way because if my opponent puts two units on my baseline, Loris helps clear both. Windmakers does the same kind of thing. Uh, I have struggled to try to play in the midboard in any sort of way that incentivizes my opponent to play into Loris. I, I've just never been able to accomplish that. It usually requires leaving a unit of theirs mm. on the board and setting it up so that when their unit walks forward, your unit is next to it. Um, think about in the same way, if they open with Destructobots, mm -hmm. if you can't clear it, what do you do? You park a unit bordering it so that they can't play linked golems next to it and advance their front if they want to play linked they have to do it behind right and, and that gives you a little more time to respond uh that's that's what you have to do in the mid game is just think about where their units are going to end up and position your units accordingly so that you're setting up that bordering aspect that's fair um i'll throw a couple of other ideas out there when you're playing against a shadow fan opponent uh and they're making a column and you read zuri you don't always have to try to clear the whole column. Sorry, you said Shadowfin opponent? Oh, pardon, it's a swarm, swarm opponent, pardon me. Uh, and you read Zuri, and you see them making a column, and you're trying to figure out whether or not you can clear their entire column, and you're like, ah, I'd have to use up everything. Another option, if their front unit is on your penultimate row, or, or, or sorry, pardon, in the middle row, and will move to your penultimate row at the start of their turn, is to simply stick a unit without movement on your baseline right in front of all of it. Uh, I do that a lot, where I'll just go aggressive with everything and then just play one non-moving unit like Frost Texers on my baseline right in front of the column. So then I hit go, their column moves forward, and now there's no room for Zuri to land. So they cannot actually get Zuri value. Uh, positioning doesn't always have to be about denying movement. Sometimes it can be about things like denying Zuri value over the top of the movement, right? Like, uh, think about not just where the units are now, but where they're going to move. Um, uh, Thomas, I just had a wonderful draft win. I was quite proud of. Uh, I base-locked my opponent by putting a big unit in front of their Phoenix. I didn't kill their Phoenix. I loaded up their baseline uh, so that there was only one op uh, open cell, and then I let my unit kill Phoenix at the start of their turn. I hit end turn, Phoenix moved forward, crashed into it, respawned on their baseline, and created the base lock. It was glorious. Um, those kinds of things about predicting the movement at the start of your opponent's next turn, how often do you find yourself thinking about, oh, well, if I put my unit here, there's no way they can kill it because all of their units are going to move forward and surround it or whatever. Oh, all the time. You have to be completely focused on that. Um, but not only the, the movement, I wanted to go back over to the 
uh, Zuri thing because not only do you have to think about uh, movement and that additional front line, but the total value that they're going to get. If you're reading like Zuri, um, they're obviously going to be able to get an extra movement forward no matter what. And so you also want to think about the total value that they're going to get. If you really spent all of your resources to try and wipe out their front line, but then you have no front line, that just means that you guys are have both been reset, but now it's the beginning of their turn, and they're going to be able to start setting up a really good Zuri turn in mm. two turns because you now have zero front this turn. So sometimes it's better to just let them have a Zuri over one unit because otherwise in two turns, they could have a Zuri over two or three units. So um, sometimes you just got to give them the value in order to not have a whole lot of value given to them just a little bit later. Yeah, it, to me, positioning is really about trying to deny what your opponent wants to do or trying to set up what you want to do. And that that's it. Like, pick one of those two actions and, and try to position accordingly. Is there any good rule of thumb either of you can think of? I cannot. But is there any good rule of thumb that either of you can think of uh, about how often you should be more mindful of your own, this is what I'm trying to do versus how often you should be trying to deny what they're trying to do. Oh, it comes yeah. down to, it comes down to your macro strategy, right? We just talked about a lot of that. 100% hmm. your deck, the deck that you put together, if you are an aggressive deck and at the beginning of the game, you read that your deck is more aggressive than theirs. That's what you need to prioritize and vice versa. Just go. Okay. <laughs> All right. If you built a control deck and when you start the game and you feel that your deck is more controlling than your opponent's, or heck, you built a control deck, but you feel your deck is a little bit more aggressive than your opponents, even because they built a slower control deck, then mm -hmm. you start playing your deck a little bit more aggressively, and that's what you need to prioritize. Yeah, that that's often, uh, when when I do my streams, Sebaiku, we'll, we'll often have that conversation somewhere like around mana 7, 8, or 9, right? Where we're suddenly like, I have to push. If I don't push they're just going to outvalue me the rest of the game. Like, like there's this realization at some point in the game where we're just like, oh, we just saw that card. Oh, gosh, if they're playing that card, then there's no way for us to win the long game. It has to be aggression, aggression, aggression from here on out, right? Yeah, it drives me crazy when your games go to nine mana. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, Maybe so, that's what I should have said, though, back over on the macro strategy. Uh, regardless of what deck you put together right away, try mm -hmm. and what your opponent is doing. And if you feel that you're the more aggressive deck, you are now suddenly an aggressive deck and you need to play like that. And right. if you feel like you're the, a control lead deck in comparison to them, then you need to play towards that. This is exactly why I love cards like Trekking over HV, right? I'm, I'm a control -y kind of player, but HV does not ever allow me to be aggressive hv is not an aggressive card so so if i suddenly queue into like a winter uh a, a health gain kind of like ulf and and uh, uh you know underground springs kind of that it's like oh no i just need to be as aggressive as i can what on earth am i ever doing with hv in that matchup but at least trekking is seven health on the board right like at least it's it's some amount of pressure, even if it's not played on their baseline. Uh, so so the, my preference towards cards that provide that sort of flexibility, Loris being another one, Ubis being one as well, right? Like there's there's a lot of cards that I think part of the reason, Sebaiku, why we see so much play of them 
is because their flexibility allows them to be in both controlling and or aggressive decks. And their preference for doing so is that they give you both kind of like, well, <laughs> I need to be the beatdown right now. At least Loris is a 10-1. Right, at least Loris has movement. That gives you a little more tempo than some of the other cards you could play in that spot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, another thing that we often talk about uh, in my streams, uh, I will randomly, not randomly, but I will occasionally play my cards out first and then cycle, and I'll explain when I'm doing it that I'm doing this first because in this matchup, this card is terrible and I never want to see it again. <laughs> um, cycling should usually be done first, but if you have a card that you think is not an appropriate card for this matchup, what do you guys think about holding it in hand and then and then just playing out the rest of your hand and throwing it away for uh, at the end? It very much depends on the rest of my hand and whether or not I can efficiently utilize my mana or if I'm looking for something specific. Fair right? enough. If a card is real bad and the rest of my hand is real good, I'll just play out the rest of my hand and then cycle later. If my hand is mediocre, I will cycle first often just trying to look for something better to play. Hmm. Yep, absolutely. Okay. But it, but it, but it does mean that there's not a like hard and fast rule that you should always cycle first. Uh, you have to be more cognizant of that of what the what your hand is and what the matchup is right before you yeah. start doing stuff like that. It, to me, that's all about efficient efficiently utilizing your resources. Right, you your resources in this case being mana and cards in hand. You only have four cards in hand unless you take uh, some pirates into your deck to manipulate that. You only ever have the mana that you start the turn with unless you're playing winter and you get to manipulate that. Um, so make sure that make sure that you're using it as efficiently as you can. And if that means if that means that you can cycle at the end of your turn because you're already in good shape, then fine, do that. But just kind of be be aware of the situation. Be aware of your your opponent. Like you said, maybe. I never want to play Hunter's Vengeance in this matchup because they're playing Shadowfen, Shadowfen with Reign of Frogs, and I'm only going to kill a one-strength frog and, you know, my whole board. So maybe I will cycle that away last just because, to your point, I never want to see it. It's all very Ever. context. It's all very mm -hmm. context-dependent. It's not a hard and fast rule. Yep. It's also dependent on what's in your deck. So you just, if you have your deck memorized, then you'll know what you need to draw into versus if it doesn't matter if you draw into something else like you've got uh melodious sisters in your deck and siege breakers and neither of their abilities are currently relevant for the turn you might as well just throw the melodious sisters out because who cares if you cycled into something that has the exact same strength and no ability right um and the other thing that i want to mention in here is there are cards that uh uh speed up your cycle that I think in general people see as a detriment. And it's funny, like, you know, when you get started in this game, everybody thinks green prototypes is terrible. Why do I want to play a card that's going to buff my opponent's units? Uh, and slowly but surely, as you get to be a better player, you start to appreciate the value of being able to move your front for one mana. I feel like both first mutineers and uh, uh, summon militia are cards that wonderfully get you through your deck faster and certain decks need that ability like like if summon militia's text was one mana 
draw an extra card at the start of your next turn. Oh, and here's a unit on the board randomly. People would appreciate the value of summon militia like four or five times more than they do. It's not a card for every deck, but it really does have a a, a space in there, no? In a lot of decks, yes. Um, I've I used to play it in every single deck ever, and then as um, I think Heroes League came out, it suddenly ceased to exist in every one of my decks ever. <laughs> well, well, Sabika, we're in a in the middle of a of a rather heavy mid-range meta as we have been for quite a while right like at some point having too many one drops is just not all that great unless you are a hyper aggressive cycling deck right yeah it now i i feel like now you're playing mostly green prototypes and erratic neglects if you want a second one mana card and very very rarely do you want a third one mana card um like you said very specific decks um for me it's really only uh super aggressive winter decks uh decks that are trying to get to Giovanna very consistently on five mana um or my my sea bass deck which is a ton of fun but just requires you to to blow through it very quickly in order to come back around to ubis again and again but, yep. And and Thomas, you were a huge proponent of freebooter, uh, not freebooters, pardon me, uh, first mutineers in draft mode because in draft mode, uh, you only have a few cards that are high level, and having a card that helps you cycle through all of those, especially one that you then choose to level up consistently, so it's a three mana five health that's cycling you to your other level five cards, uh, is fairly broken in the mode, no? It's absolutely. I love that, and um, I'm still gonna always, or I'm just always gonna keep it as a tier zero. Uh, Summon militia is also a tier zero. Uh, it's, it's an auto include. If I see that in draft, I I snap pick it, and I don't waste my levels on Summon militia because you get that uh, tempo on the board and cycle through your deck a little bit faster to your other cards that you do want to level up that have better value. Um, it absolutely is the a tier zero card in my opinion, and I also uh, draft soap cleanse all the time as well. Because <laughs> <of the> <laughs> Love it. Oh dear. So uh, for the micro stuff, we've we've hit on a lot of these decisions about like uh, um, uh, positioning of units. Uh, there was one other one that I wanted to mention about positioning of units. Oh, it was that uh, I have seen a relatively decent number of people open with Destructobots on on one, on an outer column. You are inviting me as your opponent to simply clog the only place that you could play linked golems for value plus movement, right? You should always, if you're going to open with Destructobots, hoping to find linked golems on your following turn, please play it in an inner row. Nope, uh, there's a reason for it. Actually, I oh, do the same thing. You play it on an outer column? What on earth are you doing? I am avoiding sparkly kitties. A 50% chance of sparkly kitties clearing it. So so you'd... I, in a wow. row, my opponent starts their turn with a Wild Saber Paws or a Gifted Recruits yeah. and two sparkly kitties. If I had it on one of the two center rolls, they guarantee clear my Destructor Butts. That's <laughs> hilarious. 
So it's only since Sparkly Kitties has entered the meta that this has changed your behavior then. Yeah. And playing it on the outside is absolutely the right play. Wow. That's really because it makes it so much more interesting, so much easier to uh, to just clog it and prevent the linked golems from being able to be played anywhere other than the behind of the destructo. You get crazy value out of it versus when destructo gets cleared, you don't get any value whatsoever. Right, and Link Golems is dead. Oh, dear. Yep. And yeah. you got a chance of drawing into your green prototypes for your Link Golems anyway. So, you sure. know, not, not a huge chance, but you get a couple extra draws at it. Okay, so then never mind. Ignore what I said. If you are an Iron player opening with Destructo Bots, Sparkly Kitties is in the meta now. You should only ever play Destructo on the outer columns. I do definitely is... use the outer columns way more than I used to. Yeah. Specifically because of Sparkly Kitties. Yeah. Interesting. 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 Uh, I have not. For, I was always putting Doppel in one of the two inners because of the amount of times that I would play um, Dark Harvest in decks. And sure. now it has to be outside. Huh. That is super interesting. Um. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. All right. Uh, these are the kinds of things that you need to be thinking about. Yeah. Uh, we're right. going to. You ready oh. to move on? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, to, to summarize very quickly, macro strategy what are you trying to do with your deck overall? What are you trying to do big picture in this matchup? Micro strategy what are you trying to do with each card? What are you trying to do with each turn? Right. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's kind of how we break it down here. And and there are some players who are phenomenally good at being able to identify right away, oh, I've got to be the aggressor. Oh, I've got to be the defender. Oh, in this matchup, I know which cards are good and which aren't. And there's other players who can just look at a specific turn and immediately know what the optimal play for that turn is. Um, These are two different skills. We're going to go from there. Actually, we're going to jump real quick to ladder ranks first before we get into resource management, because I, I feel like to, to end the conversation about playing and deck building and card selection, we want to go to ladder ranks uh, next, which is like, how do we read the meta? How do we understand what you're going to likely queue into? How do you change if you need to? your deck or how do you change the cards in the deck in terms of your intended use, right? Like I've always been a huge fan of using um, uh, Azure Hatcher instead of Siege Breakers when uh, uh, True Shot was in the meta because I've never felt like True Shot was high enough a percentage of, of my opponents for me to really be adding in a tech card. But Azure Hatcher was just so versatile most of the time. And in that matchup, it was the tech card. Uh, so so how how do you guys think about the meta? So Spiku, I know you just kind of like, I build a deck, I queue it in, and either I start winning or if I start losing, I speed up. But how do you guys try to gauge the meta as you run into games well number one is just keep track of your opponent even if it's just kind of a a rough mental count like oh man i've seen a lot of swarm today i want to make sure that i can combat that 
Uh, I'm trying to play a heavier controlling deck, but I don't have any way to deal with bucks, you know, or, oh man, they're playing, I'm seeing a lot of Zuri to your point before I'm going to put in Loris into this deck just specifically to try to help out that matchup. Um, so number one, in order to understand how to combat the decks that you're seeing, you have to know what decks you are actually seeing. Uh, if it helps you take notes, take notes. And I mean, you got, you're probably playing this game on a phone. You, it's got a notes app of some kind, if it's Apple or Google. So use it. Um, and then okay. number two, try to understand why you're winning or losing these matchups, right? Is it, is it just, oh man, I'm playing a, I'm playing a really heavy mid-range deck, but I don't have enough control cards. I'm just getting outrushed. Is it, man, I'm playing a rush deck. They're playing Hunter's Vengeance, and I'm just getting destroyed, and that's it. Is is it that simple? Um, is it that you're positioning poorly? Is it that you're getting out-leveled? Is it that you're cycling poorly, and you just never seem to have the card in hand that you need at the time? You know, this game, th we've talked about this uh, a handful of times. This game makes getting feedback so hard because you could lose for any of these micro or macro decisions that you're making. And it's very difficult to isolate that variable and understand why it is exactly that you lost a game. Um, so just kind of try to pay attention as best you can through the game to when you are making decisions, why you're making them. Yeah. Th Thomas, you mentioned earlier that you, think about your deck in terms of 12 cards plus a sideboard uh how how much of a sideboard do you for those people who don't know a sideboard is an old magic the gathering thing uh you could bring a deck to a tournament and the deck would be the cards in the deck plus a certain number of cards as a sideboard which after your first match against your opponent when you had to play like a best of three or best of five you could be like oh Oh, oh, you're playing that deck. Well, then I'm going to take out these two or three cards and I'm going to put these other cards in from my sideboard, which are preferential cards to have in this particular matchup. Uh, so so when you build a deck, Thomas, you, you're you not thinking about it just in terms of 12 cards. You're thinking of it in 12 cards plus a sideboard. How many cards do you consider part of your quote-unquote deck when you build it? There's a lot because as you know there's so many tech cards that can be used uh throughout each faction and each um um archetype that you're playing but when the meta is pretty wide i'm gonna first start with like when the meta is pretty wide open and there's just a lot of everything then it's best to do one card swap at a time um, as soon as i started doing that i noticed my win rate uh win up a lot there's nothing worse than swapping out two or three cards and not having any idea which one is now making some games easier and which one's making some games harder so hmm. you pick the weakest card in your deck and you slot that out for something else and you play quite a few more games and decide then which one is your next weakest link in the deck and you just keep doing that um to be able to to hone the deck and hone your skills with that deck because uh, even when you're a really great player it takes a long time to really master uh, any deck at all so i would really really recommend start when the meta is wide open 
just doing one at a time until you feel very comfortably which card is the weakest card in the deck. And there's nothing worse than people misattributing wins to very weak cards or very inconsistent cards. So be open to every single card being your weakest link. Hmm. That's that's like I, I see that fallacy all the time, Sabaiku, right? Where somebody's like, oh, my gosh, this car is overpowered. You wouldn't believe how many cards I'm winning because how many games I'm winning because I've got this card in my deck. Like, right. I, I know I've had Vet, conversations. Vet, yeah. Like, Veterans of War is winning me so many games. Yes. Yes. It's like, OK. <laughs> like, no. And it's you got a head on board and you put a big chunky unit on your opponent's baseline. Any unit in that in that situation would have won the game you could have played probably you know any of six or eight or ten different cards and they all would have won you that game because the game's already won the cards that you were playing on mana three four five and six those got you so far ahead that the game was already effectively decided by the time veterans came down yep 100 percent. so yeah be very open to each card being the potential weakest link. And so when you're plotting out cards, it could be that one that you were really set on, but well, you know, I've only played this card at, at a handful of times over the course of all these games. Maybe it is that card. So uh, just keep that in mind. So so that's with the wide open meta. Just do one card at a time and slowly transition each one in your deck out. Uh, like, so if you've got a 12 card deck, you basically go through that list of one card at a time, uh, bring that card back in potentially to try out the next card in that 12 uh, card list until you really know which one truly is that weakest link and have that one permanently out and kind of uh, revisit. So that's the wide open. And then when you get over to the um, times where there's just uh, 33% of the entire meta is, is a particular faction or a particular archetype, you probably should have like two cards teched against that. So back when wow um, two iron well like uh, when ironclad uh, aggro um, mid range was the deck to play. I was playing siege break like in my even the swarm mid range deck. I was playing siege break uh, siege breakers and I that was back back when I actually had to slot in uh, bucks into my Zuri deck because I just couldn't handle it otherwise. And that was that was a slow swarm deck for me. <laughs> so mm. if, if if you're really seeing if you're seeing like one out of three games be a particular deck, you probably should have two two tech cards against it, right? Because right. it's still two. every second or third turn before you see one of those two cards. So you want to be able to keep tech keep just beating them down. Yep. To your point about those uh, aggressive ironclad decks, right? That was back when Scrapped Planners was a little stronger than it is now, too. It was eight strength, and then it would heal back up to seven after it took damage. Oh, and, yeah. right, it, you, you knew, number one, half of your games were going to be against ironclad, and they were all going to have Scrapped in them. And number two, you had to have a way to answer Scrapped, because if you didn't, you were just going to automatically lose that game. Oh if you were gosh, playing you're right. it was 100% because um, there was no other cards that were large enough to take out even a weakened scrapped planners. No, no, no. Uh, 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 who, 1C was playing Harpies of the Hunt in like all of his decks because Harpies of the Hunt cleared, granted didn't win the trade, but cleared 
a damaged scrapped planners back then and i remember noticing yeah i remember noticing i i I actually like pinged him and asked why are you playing harpies of the hunt it's not a good card he said for three mana it clears the scrap planners and i have to clear scrap planners and it that's amazing that that that, like the meta can warp you to the point where you're looking at harpies of the hunt or mindless horde and you're going you know (laughs) if they're really that much of that particular deck i mean why not you know that it's essentially a coin flip before you run into it again right right no that's fair that's fair um i have also like i i i have there are cards that I prefer, Ubis being one of them. I just love Ubis in my five spot. It's just, it, I was always a knife juggler fan in Hearthstone. I, I love Ubis. Ubis just makes me happy. Uh, but I oh, every time I put Ubis in a deck, I tell myself, this might need to be Loris. <laughs> right, right. Like, depending upon what we see, Ubis might just not be a good card in the meta. So I put it into all of my decks when I'm theory crafting them. But in the back of my head, I just like for the five spot, Loris might need to be the card that's in there instead. Uh, Do you guys have cards like that, that you're just like, this is half of the card that exists for me in the four mana spot or the three mana spot because it's when the meta is this way it's this card and when the man is that way it's that card but these two cards are essentially the this or that for the mana spot yeah i'm always weighing those decisions when i'm making the deck um and sometimes it's negotiable and sometimes it's not uh, you know recently i was trying to make clerics with cords and blood ministers work in shadow fence and uh <laughs> i was trying i was trying to experiment with decks without rain in them um and i was i was messing around with the other 10 spots in there but i was like no these two these two are going to be here i'm playing a convert shadow fen deck with these two cards and uh that's you know on on the extreme end of not optimizing your deck uh, but even then, like it's always, do I want this trekking or do I want lost psyches because I want movement? You know, it, it's always good to Thomas's point earlier. Every card is replaceable, so it's always good to have backup options in mind for them. All right, that's fair. And, and Thomas, you, I assume you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, the there's actually three pairs that immediately come to mind for me. That's like, wow, which one do I really want to have in this last slot? And over the course of the um, the month playing against the meta, you you quickly find out. But in Shadowfen, we've got Toad versus Witches. It can be very hard mm. to choose which one it's a slot if you have to give one of them the nod. In uh, Ironclad, uh, help, helpful helpful for that. If you're going up against a, a heavy swarm meta, both. Yes. Just want to just want to pitch in there. If it's a heavy swarm meta, you, the answer is you don't want to choose between them. You want to play them both. Um, and then in Ironclad, we've got Green Gale versus Linked. I generally don't Ooh. have the room to put both in. And so okay. um, generally one or the other. And, and, then, and what is uh, the decision-making point on those? Um, for Swarm and for uh, Shadowfen, it's Green Gale. And then okay. against Wind and Ironclad, you want Linked. All right. Okay. And then what's your last one? Last one is Hunter's Vengeance uh, versus Trucking. Mm. Okay, and how do you choose? You don't. 
<laughs> for me, that one's about how much how much board I think I'm going to build up in the early game. That if I think I'm going to have a board, then no Hunter's Vengeance, and I'll put Trekking instead. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but oftentimes, yeah, both of those go into the same deck. All right, moving moving on from there, we have resource management. Um, uh, you've got coins, you've got rubies, you've got fusion stones, and I'll remind you that never in the history of Stormbound has anyone won a game simply because they had more fusion stones than their opponent. Uh, you might want to turn those into actual, like, impactful pieces of material, like, for example, cards. Uh, so how do we prioritize leveling up stuff? I'll start with, uh, uh, Thomas, how have you built your deck, your, your library, pardon me, to enable top tier decks? Um, well, so I've gone about it. We've talked about this, um, before. I cannot remember which episode. I do remember you guys and myself, uh, disagreed slightly, uh, when I was going through my, um, entire ranked um, career uh, throughout all the different ranks, I prioritized my strong faction cards, uh, low mana cost, strong faction cards first, and then my second priority were the strong um, low mana cost neutrals, and then after that started building out from there. And so the reason I chose that was I figured that the best bang for my buck was the strong faction low mana cost cards since they're slightly stronger than the neutral, even though I gave up that flexibility of the neutrals being able to go into any faction. Um, I figured because I wasn't going to have all the resources to put it into other strong faction uh, strong faction cards that I might as well just target my particular faction I was in first anyway. Huh. Okay. And Subaiku, give me what you think. Yeah, I, I do tend to go the other direction. Um, we talked way back in episode 24 about guns, generally useful neutrals, uh, just kind of getting all of those leveled up enables you to just play different factions a little more easily and know that you have a solid core of your deck that is still going to work because you're Gifted recruits, your sparkly kitties, your green prototypes are all of a good enough level that they'll support whatever shell uh, from whatever faction that you put around it. Right. Uh, the guns in this game, especially especially since kitties have come out, like one of the things about guns when we made the guns episode was that the factions at least had the most powerful two drops, Right. Like if you were looking for a six one, you would get it in, you know, destructo bots or dubious hags. But now it's like, well, actually, kitties is stronger than them. Like the guns are the best, are they not? I mean, like I, I don't know. My my personal opinion. If I was starting over with a new, with a new account, I would I would definitely go for. I don't even know if I would go for recruits anymore. I there's definitely a lot of car uh, decks where I play both recruits and kitties. But I think between the two, I'd I'd focus on kitties, no? Sure, but recruits being a common, you're going to level them up faster from a new account. I know exactly what I would um, prioritize, and it should be what you guys prioritize, as, as well as what everybody else should prioritize. It is exactly our draft guide. Our draft guide, tier zero cards, 
RSV Whoa. cars that you're leveling up for first. Wait, wait, in 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 standard constructed ladder? Absolutely. They're still going to be tier uh, zero when you start leveling them up. Oh, boy, I got to think about this. This is I had not contemplated this. Uh, Sabaiku, I need you to talk for a minute so I can think through this. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's a generally solid list of cards to start with. It can be the core of a lot of decks. Um, you know, MERS is on there, for example, which maybe isn't as appropriate to ladder. Uh, and that's where it starts to break down for me. Draft games are at least predictably slower than most ladder games. So something like MERS, some of those value generating cards, uh, Crazy Bombers, for example, not a not a card you should necessarily prioritize in ladder play because you're probably going to try to play something a little quicker. Um, but still, like a, a generally useful card, and if the game does go that late, you'll be happy you do have it leveled. But I'd probably focus on Wild Saber, Paws, and Sparkly Kitties first. Um, yeah, I, I, that's I, you. Thank you for saying that because you just you just triggered it in my mind. We deprioritize in draft epics because it's so hard to find epics for your upgrades. So we make the assumption when we tier the cards for draft that you're only going to see at maximum three more likely two or even just one upgrade on your epics so we don't see saber paws as being all that powerful because at best it's a two two whereas in and i think we do have i think we do have saber paws as a tier one draft card right just because it's cheap and has movement most of the time but I agree. In ladder, it's a tier zero card. It's in literally every one of my decks. And it should be. No, yeah. to, to, right, right. And look, if you're a swarm player, we don't uh, uh, rate Forgotten Souls particularly highly in draft because it's just really hard to get the full value out of it. Forgotten Souls is a fair card until level five. And then at level five, oh dear graciousness, is it busted. Uh, out of nowhere, it moves everything into base, which seems a little unfair at times, to be honest. But, uh, yeah. but it's, yeah, a tier, in, in it's a tier zero card in, in ladder. Yeah, but yeah, so like in general, though, our draft guide mostly follows uh, the same as uh, like all of the first place uh, Heroes League's winners for the past almost year and a half now. Um I would say every single one of the cards that we ranked in draft would be either tier zero or tier one uh, for every single one of those decks, except for maybe Ubis, which is tier three in draft. <laughs> yeah, but only because you can't get it up to level five. And in reality, if you can get it up to level five, it's tier zero. Uh, yep, but I mean, yeah, like, you know, so... what? you're right. I'm going to I'm actually going to agree with Thomas on this. This it's really funny. I had not equated the two. But now that you mention it, yeah, I think you're right, Thomas. It, it's a pretty good starting point for sure. You, you can quibble with yeah. uh, individual card selections, but I think probably 90% uh, of the list is going to work for you. I, I could have said that a little bit better. I, I think that that is the best way to put it. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and at the end of the day, we also, like the draft guide prioritizes versatility. Uh, uh, the, you know, because we don't know the specifics of your deck. We don't know exactly what you're drafting. So our tiers are really weighted for versatility. These are the best cards 
in general, regardless right. of what else you have in your deck, these are the best cards to just have and have right. at a high level. Just a solid standalone card. Yep. And if you're if you're not sure what faction or what archetype or you know what specific deck you're trying to build in your library when you're getting started, that's probably a good place to be as well. Just standalone. What are the best cards to have? And the draft guide should give you that. You're right, huh? Yep. All right. So so let's go from there to the final kind of concept, which is if you are if you are a good player or even a great player, but you want to improve, what are the kinds of things that we would recommend that you do uh, to improve? I'll, I'll, I'll start on this one because this is, I, I took the time to literally, uh, I started streaming solely for the, for the purpose of being more mindful during my games. Uh, I found that when I stream, I talk through my turns, I think about different alternatives, and I try to explain to whoever's watching why those alternatives aren't as good. When I play off stream, I tend to be just a worse player because I don't have the the uh, discipline to go through that same process, right? So for me, uh, uh, being more mindful about every moment, every turn, everything to consider, those kinds of things for me have helped me be a better player. What do you guys uh, recommend? Yeah, number one, play mindfully. Don't just have it. Don't just have the game going while you're watching TV in the background. If you want to play to entertain yourself, that's totally fine. I'm not trying to say you have to give this game 100% of your attention all the time. I'm saying specifically, if you want to improve your game, make sure you're actually playing the game and not doing something else instead. Right. Uh, number two for me is record your games and rewatch them. This is something that I started doing uploads to YouTube uh, specifically so that I did pay attention to what I was doing and I could go back and try to understand, oh, I made a mistake on this uh, six mana turn, seven mana turn because I could have done X, Y, or Z, but instead I did A, B, and C. And if I had done that differently, the game could have gone a different way. Um, so going back and re-watching your games is definitely helpful. You don't need to upload them. You don't need to show them to anyone else. You can just kind of go back to them with fresh eyes a little bit later. Um, and I think that that's really important. Uh, but while we're talking about YouTube, number three, do some research. Find players on YouTube. Try to watch them to understand why they're playing the way they are. And think about what kind of plays you would have done differently, why you would have done them differently, and whether it, the outcome would have been better or worse than what the player who uploaded the game did. Yeah, I used to do that all the time. I used to watch Reckless Rush's videos, and I would pause it before he played his turn just when his hand was there, and I would decide for myself what to cycle and what to play. And you wouldn't believe how often I was wrong. <laughs> like, he, he would cycle a completely different card. He would play... All the, like, none of the cards I thought he'd play. I was constantly amazed uh, when I first got started at, 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 at just how different the top players were playing their hands out than I was. Because they were thinking about things like cycling and things like setting up future turns that I wasn't. I was just thinking about what's the maximum health I can put on the board right now, right? Um, Thomas, what, what, what kinds of things have you've actually hit number one? for a Heroes League season. So you have at at least once 
been the number one player in the world. How did you achieve that? What kinds of things did you do to improve yourself? Um, everything that you guys have already commented. Uh, additionally, uh, as crazy as it is, uh, a person has to get off their high horse. There's always more things to learn. Uh, the moment that you think that you're basically better than everyone else is the exact time that you start getting a lot worse than everyone else because everyone is constantly learning. So if you think that you're basically better and you quit learning from other people, you're, you're just losing a lot of opportunity. So always be open to learning new things and asking other people what they're doing and asking dumb questions because the more you can do that, the more little random things that you can learn about it. So I would say that that's uh, a huge deal. I just honestly, within the last year, learned how to really properly play Gift of the Wise decks. And, and I've been playing for almost four years now. So wait, you know how to play Gift of the Wise decks? Can you teach me? <laughs> I, well, I still don't even know how to play Ironclad structures. There's some amazing ones out there, and I still have not learned yet how to properly play those. And so just constantly uh, be open to to learning new things and never assume that you're a better player than anybody else especially those bronze players in draft they will kick your butt <laughs> <laughs> yes um, they will another big thing is don't tilt don't get like the if you make a bad play you need to quickly address your own emotional state because the moment that you start getting angry about things, the more emotional you start playing and the less logical you start playing. And it makes it harder and harder to win. And you just kind of go into a snowball effect when that does happen. And so um, after that game, log off until you can get back to a good emotional state to, to be able to play properly. Yeah, that's not uh, fun. <laughs> the last tip I would give, and this one has been huge, is... Don't play when you're sleepy. Like if you're trying to win, do not play when you first wake up and you're making breakfast uh, because you will lose every single game. Um, when I was doing that month where I was going to first place, I only played in the evening um, when my brain was fully active. So for each person, obviously, uh, it, it depends on when your brain is most active. Some people, it's early morning. I am the opposite. So I found that if I am trying to play competitively, I do not play when my uh, brain is not fully uh, firing at full bore and only play during those times of the day where it is. That's funny because I definitely do the opposite. I I try to jam three or four games in the morning before I get out of bed. Those are typically my best games of the day. It's only downhill from there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, a couple of other ideas on how to improve. One of the things that uh, when I'm building a deck for the first time and I'm theory crafting it and I'm testing it out, uh, I try to pay attention to which cards I'm consistently cycling, right? Like if there's a card that 90% of the time it shows up in my hand, I'm like, well, this isn't useful right now. Let's cycle it. Uh, that's probably a card that doesn't belong in the deck. Uh, so if yeah, you find a uh, micro strategy that we were talking about earlier when it came to uh, getting those less useful cards out of your deck. Right, exactly. Uh, so so there, there are, you, you know, you cannot under any circumstances build a deck that is favored into every matchup, right? Like, so the, the, the goal is to try to find a deck that you can play to the highest overall play rate into the meta. So that means you have to understand the meta. That means you have to understand where your skill set is. 
knowing that the meta is weak to aggressive decks is fine and all, but if you suck at playing aggressive decks, that bit of knowledge is somewhat useless because that's not your forte. And until you've honed yourself to the point where you are good at doing it, you're not going to find that jumping away from your favorite mid-range style decks into those aggressive decks is that's not going to get you better win rates. Um, so you 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 have to kind of take all of these things into account to 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 find your optimal point. Um, and I mean, listen to Thomas; he's been playing for four years and he's still learning different archetypes. So so don't be frustrated if you're like, well, I, I understand that I should be playing a whatever deck right now because that's what's good, but I can't. That's okay. Uh, we interviewed Stony J. I was shocked to find out when we interviewed Stony J. But she's like, yeah, I can't figure out Bragda. I play Claxi because Bragda decks just conf- like they just never work out right for me. It was such a, a, a wonderful moment to hear that for me personally because I can't make Bragda work either. Um, so you, you, you kind of have to take all of that into account. Uh, the last thing that I will give anyone out there in terms of advice, I I used to coach youth sports and I would always tell um, my players this when they were struggling, it is really easy to improve when things are going your way, when you're winning a lot, when things are like, it, it, it just, it's all coming naturally right now. And just, it seems effortless and, and you know, every turn and it's really easy uh every one of the players on ladder when they're in those zones when they're in their hot zone uh they're finding it easy to play they're finding it easy to improve the difference in where you can move yourself further ahead of the rest of the field is when the going gets tough because when the going gets tough most players turn the phone off and throw it away they exit the game they stop, they tilt, they do whatever it is, but one way or another, when it's not going well for them, they're getting frustrated and they're no longer improving. They're no longer being mindful. And what really, what really helps those at the top get ahead is that even when they're losing, they're learning. They're not getting frustrated by it, but they're seeing it as the opportunity to get ahead. Uh, So if you think that everybody's going to be in the zone for give or take the same amount of time throughout a season and everyone's going to be in a bad zone for about the same amount, right? Everybody's going to run into the same kind of losing streaks. Then that means that if you can find more value from your losing streaks than everyone else after a couple of months, holy smokes, are you ahead of the game? Uh, That's hard to do, no doubt. But if you can do it, you'll find yourself ahead of uh, rest uh, ahead of the rest of the pack. Well, that is, uh, no, well, I think what you said is exactly right. It's fantastic advice. Um, you know, definitely learning from your failures is important. That's the only way that you can get better. Uh, I just wanted to point out that you didn't say the most, oh? the most, the most important way to improve is to lower your curve and add a finisher. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to end the main portion of this episode, which means it's time for me to remind you to contact us preferably in our channel in the Stormbound Discord server, but also on Twitter at Broodsages. You can always email us at thebroodsages at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for this episode. For Sabaiku and Thomas, I am Freeloader. We are the Broodsages reminding you to stay hydrated.